It's December 27th, 2021, and after a couple weeks, I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. And the first one we'll start off with here, the United States approves possible FMS of emails and AAG to France from Naval News. And of course, that's the electromagnetic aircraft launch system emails and the advanced arresting gear, AAG. And it comes with a whole bunch of other stuff, including spares, uh, support equipment, you know, technical drawings and manuals, engineering services. The total estimated cost is $1.321 billion. And they say here that that's often the maximum price in the final contracts are signed substantially lower than that. So this was pretty interesting. It, I, I, it seemed like it had been in the works for quite some time that they were, had been kind of, you know, testing Dassault aircrafts and um, others on... Um, the emails in the U.S., but, you know, it felt like it was a little bit of a consolation prize for the AUKUS deal <laughs> with the nuclear subs to Australia, and France was pissed off, but maybe that's why this is coming out now. But that was just my impression. But interesting that, you know, that they're going to kind of... France is giving a vote of confidence in the emails in AAG, even though they've had some some problems, but... Um, interesting thing here. Yeah, I wondered that too about the uh, the AUKUS deal. <laughs> if this was uh, this got accelerated a little bit after after kind of that breakdown. Uh, but there are a couple of things, a couple of interesting things in this article. Um, one is that the, there weren't any offset agreements as part of this sale. That's typically a little bit um, unique because oftentimes if you do a really big deal like this, the the, the other country will want to have you know, like uh, some type of access to the technology. So their, their, uh, their technical folks can kind of get up to speed a little bit more. They may not have the full IP, but typically they try to get them more exposed to the, to the technology. And in this case, it seems like um, they're not actually asking for specific offsets. Maybe there's some things we don't know about there. So, uh, but yet. Well, they did say they, they're giving drawings and interface control documents, technical assistance, yeah. technical services. Um, and technical manuals, but yeah, they're not like building a school in France or something like that, or you know, whatever other types of offsets. Or maybe the offsets are like almost built into the contract where they're not called out as offsets. But anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and then the other thing that got me was I kind of thought this because the USS Ford is already integrating this. I kind of thought this would be something, you know, that would happen over the next couple of years, but. Looking at the schedule, it's a, a 2033 to 2038 uh, installation. So it's the new, I guess, France's new car- new aircraft carrier, uh, which is quite a ways out there, almost, uh, you know, more than 10, 10 to 12 years out. So kind of interesting. And uh, yeah, it looks like uh, it will be a, uh, oh yeah, the, the other thing was that was kind of interesting is the, I had kind of lost track of emails a little bit in terms of you know, just how it was doing was it's, you know, had it worked through all of its issues. And it looks like they've actually done, the Navy, the U.S. Navy has done 8,000 successful aircraft launches and recoveries. So uh, that's that's got to be pretty good news for um, for the uh, carrier folks who were integrating this and, you know, uh, don't have to don't have to rip it out and try to replace it. So. Yeah, most definitely. I didn't, I guess I skipped over that part, 2033 to 38 installation. It's just... I don't know. These timelines always seem absurdly ridiculous to me, but I guess you know you have to build the carrier in mind. So, uh, with with that, it's, yeah, it sounds like they might actually be like just starting the design of this new Porte Avion Novelle aircraft, and then so it looks like they might actually be designing it from scratch, um, building on the the De Gaulle class. So, yeah, this this might be like one piece of a large design that hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> You know, one of the things, it seems like they should have gone with maybe like a smaller configuration. Doesn't emails like provide a lot more uh, space that the the catapults of, of the steam type like required a lot more space. So maybe you could like actually have a pretty good capability on a much smaller, you know, platform in the future. I wonder if that's because, you know, we've been hearing in the U.S. they've been talking about small carriers and whether we need to go back to those and certainly in world war ii we built a whole bunch of those right uh, so you know and it's also there's a number of other smaller um light amphibious warships out there that that have aviation capabilities but there was a 
Yeah. There was actually a really good article about that, and I'm trying to remember all the details, but there was a case against small carriers, and it was something with, you know, you 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 kind of massively reduce your capacity, you know, so your aircraft, you know, your ability to kind of have, uh, you know, aircraft uh, patrolling, and then be able to go do missions, and then have other aircraft ready to kind of you know go out and do do the next mission it's like if you if you shrink it down too much you you have still have a big chunk of metal but you don't have nearly the capacity so there's like some sweet spot um but yeah i I agree with you it's kind of interesting that they went with a bigger they're going much bigger than what they currently have uh versus like you said yeah shrinking it down maybe a little bit so yeah so must have been a lot of considerations in that but yeah, but if you, I think a lot of that, you know, is you have all of these AWACS and other types of aircraft that are for defensive support, right? ISR and defense, and then you only have a few, and anti-submarine warfare, of course, and then you only have a few to go on attack missions. And I, I suppose if you disaggregate and make the, the carriers smaller, then, and potentially offload some of the other protection duties to smaller whether they're autonomous or, you know, the frigates or what, what have you, um, you might be able to pack, you know, just like have straight up the strike aircraft on these, on these things. And they're a little bit more, they're not attritable, but you know, somewhere closer to that. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. If you weren't, if you didn't have all large, uh, you know, super complex fighter aircraft or, you know, some of the other aircraft helicopters and stuff, if you didn't have as much of that and you had more smaller UASs, um, that, yeah, that would make more sense. You're right. Yeah, have smaller. You'd be able to have smaller carriers. All right, we'll stick with uh, France here. French Navy Frem frigates hook U.S. Navy ASW anti-submarine warfare award again from Naval News. And so I actually wasn't, you know, up to speed on this Hook'em award that the Navy's been hosting. It was actually started in 1975 um, to demonstrate ASW excellence, and it was discontinued. I guess in the '90s and reestablished here in 2016, and uh, the the French have of course been able to win the past couple times and in, in this most recent one as well, and so uh, using the Frem, so they also had a, a bunch of good information on on that class of warship. But you know, it, it kind of goes to show you, right? <laughs> like like our our allies have a bunch of capabilities that we potentially don't have and can learn from, and so. Um, yeah, the U.S. Is, isn't the pinnacle of all combat capability, it would seem. Yeah, this was a pretty impressive, uh, you know, just reading in the details of this uh, FREM uh, um, capability here that, it, you know, it has like, you know, this this radar that's almost sounds like it's something even better than what the U.S. has. And the sonar and these different missiles that are and torpedoes that are all, you know, very designed. So it sounds like the French put a lot of focus into anti-submarine warfare. So I don't, I don't know the exact reason for that, but they uh, seem to have, seem to have been pretty cognizant that that was going to be a, a future, future capability that <laughs> wasn't going to go away. So yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah. I recently read, it's not on our list here that China's has like a quantum center for anti-submarine warfare. That's really powerful. And I've been, you know, we've been hearing also about like them using AIML to kind of snuff that out, but you know, quantum as well. It, it seems like, you know, can can these uh, Virginia class and other and Columbia class that will be coming down the pike, will those actually be able to hide, you know, in five, 10 years time? Or will they kind of be sitting ducks and they're also pretty massive too? Yeah, I mean, that it kind of to me is why I'm pretty skeptical about stealth. I mean, I think there's like a, there's a point where you can only be so stealthy, right? Um, you can have, you know, how much, how much of a heat signature, you know, do you not need when you're flying, you know, really fast and really, uh, really high. So yeah, it's one of those things where I think you can only push it so far where you, you can only be so quiet you can only be so stealthy and you're, yeah, the enemy is constantly, you know, coming up with countermeasures and, you know, finding different ways to detect you. I mean, it's kind of like, remember the F-117 in the, you know, in um, the Kosovo war where, you know, everyone thought they were completely stealthy, but the you know, the Russians actually found a way to track them in different ways. So, yeah, I think it's always going to be like, you know, kind of a, a chasing thing where we're going to have to constantly improve and find all the, you know, edge capability. And then, you know, the adversary will continue advancing. And it'll just, you know, at some point it'll catch up. I think we'll have to do something totally different. Yeah. I, what I've heard was the, the F-117 that was downed 
like the Americans just didn't even bother like changing their approach route. So they kind of knew exactly where it was going to come from. <laughs> it was, was that part of the case or was it like they actually had, you know, they were able to detect it to some degree. Yeah, no, you're right. I think that's how they initially were able to get a signature on it. So they knew what it looked like and then they characterized it and then, and then they were able to start detecting it. Um, and then I think in one case, they, the, when the doors would drop, it became more visible when they would, were about to drop something, uh, a weapon, they, they could see it more clearly. And so, yeah, after a while they got smarter about what it looked like, but yeah, with low band radars and stuff like that, it, you know, stealth is, is getting harder and you got to come up with different ways. I think that's why you see the shift towards electronic warfare and, uh, yeah, I don't know all the cool stuff that the uh, Columbia class is doing, but I imagine they have some pretty, pretty. Well, actually, we did, we did talk about one of the things, yeah, with the di different like double halls and different things like that. So, yeah, it sounds like there's, uh, you know, uh, they have a lot of good ideas and it's probably probably as good as it can get. But at some point, you, know, you have all these different sensors all over the floor, uh, ocean floor and yeah, quantum sensors and stuff. It's going to become probably uh, increasingly more challenging. Yeah, so the next one we got here is Israeli companies exported cruise missiles to China without a permit from the Jerusalem Post. And three Israeli companies and 10 suspects were indicted exporting cruise missiles to China. And they produced dozens of cruise missiles and performed a no number of tests with them in Israeli territory, supposedly endangering human life, um, according to the state attorney, I suppose. They uh, were using facilities that were not approved for this uh, in order to get around some of the, some of the law here. Uh, so the missiles were transferred to China in a concealed manner, and millions of dollars were received in return. And so I wonder, you know, like it's how much the Israelis here in this case were just giving them, you know, missiles for use, or it just seems like I would jack up the price on that. Just because one of the danger and two, they're just going to reverse engineer the damn thing and then build their own. Right. So you're not going to get any kind of big production contracts out of China ever. And even if you could, that would be super sketch. Someone would find you. So, you know, it seemed like I, I would have asked for a pretty high missile <laughs> or, you know, return on on any individual missile here. But. Um, good that they were caught, and hopefully, you know, it sends a message throughout the community. Yeah, the one thing I wasn't sure about, that this article noted in the end that the, they said that the weapons were not ultimately used by the Chinese military, which I guess, whether you believe that or not. But it's not like China doesn't have, you know, missile capability. I mean, they've been, they've been working on missiles for a long time. So doing a cruise missile doesn't seem completely out of their realm. Um, so it's a little bit interesting what their intention here was. Was there... Yeah, it just, I don't know, it's a super sketchy story in terms of, like, these guys must have known they would be, you know, caught at some point, and, you know, weapons trafficking, you know, is, is not a crime you want to commit, so, yeah, I kind of, I kind of wonder what the backstory is on this one, it just sounds almost, almost like a, a Tom Clancy novel or something. Well, I'm sure it was, like, there was very particular pieces of technology on the cruise missile that they were interested in, you know? So, well, the next one we got is NASA's SLS rocket just got $3.2 billion more expensive from the Motley Fool. And so Northrop Grumman here, which is building the booster rockets for five SLS rockets, got a $3.2 billion contract. Um, and they'll participate in the Artemis program, of course, to get to the moon. And that price tag there is actually really high <laughs> so you know relative to spacex um on paper it looks like uh if nasa decided to just discontinue northrop's booster and use spacex which is actually more powerful um and cheaper they could build a 40 percent more powerful sls and spend half as much money on boosters um by discarding the northrop design but of course uh, what they say here at the end. Granted, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> so there's a lot of politics happening, of course, in SLS. And, um, you know, this this article here was just pretty, you know, interesting in terms of the comparison between, you know, the, the Northrop booster and, and the Falcon. Uh, so, you know, just, I guess, government wasting more money here. To, but in this case, it's to keep competition. I, I wonder if the competition is even competitive to, you know, justify that that claim yeah i mean it's so the uh spacex does have the hls uh contract which has i guess lower requirements 
they only needed to bring, uh, I guess it's less, less amount of weight into, into orbit. And they also have to bring less, uh, less people. It's only two versus the SLS, I think has four. Um, so it is interesting that, right, that we have, I mean, it, it almost seems like NASA's intentionally kind of distributing the wealth to kind of keep, keep everybody in the game to some extent. So yeah, it, this sounds like a lot of money. I will say I did look into it a little bit. The IG report actually says that uh, they they projected that each uh, SLS Orion system, which includes the capsule, the crew capsule, and the rocket, uh, would actually be four point one billion per launch. So, um, still kind of wanted to see more details on the on the breakdown. But as a comparison, this was one of the other things that uh, was noted in a separate article was that the whole Apollo program, you know, between nineteen sixty and seventy three when you equate how much money was spent then to now, it would have been about $280 billion. And the oh, the IG report said this would be about $93 billion. So, you know, I think it depends on how you look at it and how you break it down. Um, basically, going to the moon and doing these kinds of really long missions with a lot of uh, lot of weight that you're trying to take into, uh, into orbit, you know, is always going to be expensive. So um, I don't know if it's actually that much money. I think it depends on what you compare it to, you know what I mean? Well, I think the the point here was just like looking booster for booster, right? And the cost and the power um, of of those boosters. And um, but yeah, I mean, two hundred eighty billion dollars versus ninety three billion dollars. I mean, of course, we've done it before, or the United States went to the moon before, so it shouldn't be as difficult going back. And there's a lot of new technologies to drive those costs down. I mean, imagine the computers that they used. And what they had to do to kind of calculate that stuff is pretty amazing. But yeah, I mean, I, I get you. There's going to be waste in the system. But it, it just feels to me that um, NASA is only doing it because they need to spread the wealth to satisfy Congress. Like Congress is really kind of driving that that SLS and um, given Boeing. I mean, Boeing, you know, just not even talking about the boosters. They seem to be having a lot of problems with their launch vehicle on this as well. And so the question really is like, you know, is this a case where they're trying to keep competition alive or is this a case where, you know, is this a prime example of Congress waste, Congress directed waste in the system? You know, like if you added up all of the waste, you know, quote unquote waste or a fraud or abuse that happens in commercial item and OTs and middle tier, like name all of those, put them all together. You know, just this one example here of Congress waste, you know, far outstrips them all. Or maybe not. I yeah, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think you're right. No doubt that SpaceX, I mean, they probably should have just given the whole darn thing to, to SpaceX and, you know, <laughs> they probably could have done it a lot cheaper. So, yeah, they're, you're right. There's Some of this is just that congressional, it's kind of like the F-35, right? They had to, like, spread the supply chain out across the entire, you know, entire country. And, you know, they, they try to do it for other programs too, like, because they know, right? Companies know that the more... The more they spread it out, the better, more congressional support they'll get. And NASA was probably savvy enough, especially after they got pushback, um, to say, okay, we, we know we're not going to get this thing funded if we don't kind of play along. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's definitely not as efficient as it could be. Yeah, I guess one of the things is there's tons of competition in new space, you know, Rocket Labs and the rest. So, you know, how how long do you carry ULA and and Boeing and some of these other guys, if if they just can't compete, um, so the next one here, of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to Spin Launch, a company that hurls satellites into space using giant spinning machine from Think Big, and uh, <laughs> the quote here from from the CEO is, I find that the more audacious and cr- and crazy the project is, the better off you are just working on it rather than being out there talking about it. Um, so what they've shown here is that they can actually pull it off, and they use a vacuum sealed suborbital accelerator, which is taller than the Statue of Liberty, I want to see this thing in real life, to spin a 10-foot long projectile on a rotating arm until it reaches a speed many thousands of miles an hour. And it says uh, Spin Launch here will be able to um, get 10 times cheaper and require four times less fuel than is what is currently used to put payloads of the similar size into orbit. And of course, there's also zero emissions, so that goes with the the sustainable friendly crowd. 
So ultimately, it's a pretty interesting idea. And here's just another one coming out of, you know, left field that there's no way government would ever have supported until it became, you know, successful on its own right. Yeah, it's funny. I was really happy that you brought this one up because I was, uh, uh, me and Pete were kind of exchanging some some notes on it um, a few weeks ago. And it was, you know, it's like, it, yeah, exactly. It's one of those things that only the commercial sector could come up with, only some really outside the box entrepreneur. Um, there have been some, I looked into this a little bit more, there, there are some kind of counter uh, um, people who say that this actually won't work as well as, as they're saying. Um, so, you know, we'll have, to, we'll have to see how it goes. They, they say it actually need to go much faster uh, to, to actually break, um, to break the atmosphere and get into a reasonable LEO orbit. So um, I love the idea though, because launch has to get faster as we try to do more like tactical satellites where you know, maybe we launch thing, something that's only going to have a year lifespan because we know we need it for a certain mission. And so we launch a bunch of them uh, in really low Earth orbit and just let them burn back in. Um, you know, we don't really do any control on them. So I, I love the idea of being able to do that, but you're going to have to get launch launch costs to be much smaller, uh, much lower uh, in order for that to be feasible. So, yeah, this kind of solution would go go a long way towards that. So I really, really hope it works. Yeah, I mean, 10 times cheaper, you're going to be taking risks there, um, but you're going to get massive rewards potentially. Actually, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference out in San Francisco, and I met the guy, <laughs> uh, the CEO of this company, and he was telling me about it. And I was like, well, that's a cool idea. We'll, we'll see, huh? And I guess I, I forgot about it, and now it's, uh, it's becoming a big thing. So, you know, kudos to him, and hopefully um, he's able to do some cool stuff. So the next one we got here, a new hypersonic wind tunnel will put China 20 to 30 years ahead of the West from interesting engineering. And so here we're talking about the JF-22 wind tunnel. A lot of it's still classified, but there was a professor in China um, who was kind of talking about this in the open, uh, able to simulate flights up to Mach 30. And the next most powerful wind tunnel here, the JF-12 in China, runs at just a fifth of the power. Now, just to give you an example here of what this thing is like, the JF-22 requires roughly three quarters the capacity of power output from China's Three Gorges Dam. And that just is kind of mind boggling to me um, to a degree. It kind of reminds me of like the Manhattan Project, right? <laughs> where, they were, where they were siphoning a lot of uh, power there from dams in um, near Hanfield, right? In, uh, in, in Washington. But um, yeah, so this one was a, a pretty interesting one. Um, and we'll see, you know, China was putting the emphasis on these enabling inputs, whereas we just kind of fund the outputs and hope that things like wind tunnels, you know, take care of themselves. It looks like NASA is really the place that funds these things. And the U.S.'s best uh, wind tunnel can test up to Mach 7, and that's at Neil Armstrong Test Facility in Ohio. So, yeah, we talked about this before. Any, any uh, new? I don't know if there's too much new here, but any thoughts? Well, I guess the newest thing was, I mean, we, we kind of took it. I think we said back when we first talked about this that, like, you know, this has all been kind of, you know, conjecture or, you know, discussions in the academia world. We haven't actually seen, you know, dates for it to be fielded or um, I, I haven't seen like any pictures of like construction start being started on it. So we don't really know where this, where this is actually going to, going to end up. Is it just this professor who's, who's trying to sell this idea and he's getting it out there and he wants to get, get a bunch of money to go, you know, try to do something unique, or is this actually like a viable, you know, concept that has a plan? Um, it definitely sounds like this, uh, professor Combs, uh, from the university of Tennessee, who I looked up his background. It's pretty, pretty, um, uh, credible guy. Uh, he, he kind of basically calls the BS flag on all this and says it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And, you know, th there's a reason why the hypersonic models are the hypersonic wind tunnels are the way they are, because at a certain point, you basically, the explosions are creating such high air, uh, speed airflow that they're just, you know, basically, you know, moving through mud or whatever, moving through like you wouldn't actually get good data from it. And it wouldn't actually simulate what would happen in a real um, in a real world environment. So, yeah. So I don't know. You know, I don't know what to believe in this one. It definitely sounds intriguing, and you know, some people seem to buy into it. But uh, sounds like we'll have to kind of monitor this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see how long we have to monitor it for. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but years. you know, a couple of aerospace hypersonic guys, I asked them about this, and they're like, "Yeah, dude, I think we think that's a real thing going on in China." Um, I think the best, you know, one of the things that's always true about experts is like science advances by proving experts wrong. Because if the experts were always right, then we would never advance anywhere, right? So, I mean, that's not to knock Combs, but like, um, you know, maybe he doesn't exactly know. Yeah. But I think his best point there was really that why would you even need Mach 30, right? Because like you're not even going to get that unless you have like something re-entering Earth's atmosphere coming from the moon or Mars or something like ridiculous like that. So most conventional uses of hypersonic technologies, like that's just like not even in the realm of like useful operationally. Yeah, that's that was the that was the point that stuck with me too. So, yeah, I guess we'll uh, I guess we'll see. That's interesting. You got you got that feedback though. So yeah, yeah, experts always agree, disagree with each other. So you never know. But some of this stuff just sounds like one thing that always confuses me is how you know the combustion chamber of a rocket engine like actually like doesn't just like disintegrate or something. And there in this one, they're saying that. The JF-22 at Mach 30 could reach temperatures of 10,000 degrees Celsius. That's 18,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is hot enough to break air molecules into atoms and give them electrical charge. And so the guy's saying here that, like, the air at Mach 30 is like a a vehicle swimming in mud. It's not like breathing air anymore. So things like um, ramjet engines and those types don't work as well. And they're actually talking about, like, chemical using chemical explosions to generate those speeds so again like it's like a different technological i guess approach um than kind of what seems to be dominant here in the u.s yeah it is kind of interesting too because i mean the whole thing with hypersonics initially the the thing that was kind of holding it back was some of the material sciences like being able to hold up on the stresses especially with you know when you re-enter and being able to actually change direction would put a lot of stress on, on the on the materials and so, you know, getting that to be, um, you know, at a level that that you could still maintain the integrity of the system and, you know, hit a target. So, yeah, by going at this speed and, and generating even higher temperatures, it seems like it would push that material science even to greater levels where you're going to have to come up with whole new ways of doing things. Because reentry vehicles for nuclear weapons today, um, you know, I mean, they, they take a beating and they have to be designed extremely specifically with extremely specific materials and, you know, coated with like carbon and all this stuff. So, yeah, they're going to have to get pretty creative on a, on the materials side of this if they actually develop something that would even be close to Mach 30, which seems kind of crazy. But, yep, I guess uh All right, well, sticking with the hypersonic world here, Air Force hypersonic weapon runs into trouble after third failed test. And an unknown issue caused the launch sequence to be aborted on this third trial uh, before the booster was even released. And this, of course, the third one, the second one, um, a few months ago, the Aero's engine did not ignite after launch. And uh, the, the first one, they were not able to even complete the launch sequence. So it looks like, you know, they've kind of moved back here. Uh, you've been a little bit, I guess, uh, I don't know, I would say that you've been despondent, <laughs> right, with, with the news of, of this failure here. So do you want to explain that one? Yeah, I think I put something on LinkedIn about it. I mean, I just, I thought that, uh, you know, I thought they were getting close to, you know, to moving past some of those initial issues they were having. And you kind of, you know, you kind of give programs, you have to give programs a couple chances, like we always say with, prototyping and kind of moving fast and arrow this whole program was moving a lot faster than it was ever planned to because it was kind of you know it was kind of brought into the for the foray um as like an accelerated effort to kind of play catch up so you always expected that they would have some issues but to have the same one twice yeah it really is discouraging and the po is pretty clear that they needed to get a successful launch this year um to, to burn down some of that probably technical risk and probably also, you know, some of those test events that need to be checked off before they can, um, uh, before they can move into the next phase of the program, get into production. So this sounds like it's going to delay them and we'll probably put some of their other money at risk. So, uh, yeah, disappointing. I hope, hope they can solve this and have some good successes here in 22. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, this gets back to why defense acquisition is, 
not set up procedurally very well for these types of prototype efforts because it's like well i guess the service had been planning they want to spend 161 million to buy the first 12 arrows in fy22 so of course like in order to kind of accelerate this whole thing um they had to kind of like line the money up in order to line the money up you had to presume that you would actually you know achieve a certain technological and testing state by a certain time but you didn't know that right so like what happens when you know things don't go according to plan there's massive replanning throughout the organization and people get like you know cold feet and then you get you know congress involved and they might want to cancel it and then the whole thing's kind of start spiraling and so there was never any kind of like well let's just you know keep a diversity of what we had been working on and then scale what seems to be working that that optionality is just straight up missing from the system and here's a good example of what happens right you're just going to stretch it out the money's going to be late, but you're not going to start anything else to hedge that bet. That arrow was just on the wrong technical path. Maybe it wasn't, right? Maybe it just will take more than three tests. Um, but in either case, like whether it will be successful soon or whether it, you know, was not the right path, um, the, the acquisition system just wanted to either just to march along according to some schedule some guy wrote you know years ago well i mean i agree with you on the like the trade space piece and every program should should have that you know built in where yeah we're gonna you know we're gonna evaluate this at certain periods and see where we're at and you know we either make a decision to expend a lot of extra money and, and incur potential risk by pursuing you know the x you know the x uh, variable or we decide to kind of stay within the boundary of what we know is really achievable and, you know, probably gets you there quicker. So, you know, you have to make those trade-offs, but, you know, on this case, they haven't even gotten to the optionality stage because they haven't, you know, been able to get a good launch. And so I think until they can get a launch, they can see, you know, does it go where it's supposed to go? Does it, you know, uh, go at the speeds they expected? Is it, you know, is it control, is there any control surfaces that need to be redesigned? Like, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, I feel like they haven't even gotten to that place yet. I mean, that's probably gonna happen multiple tests later um before they can even think about it and now they're now they're behind on that so kind of even delays even delays that trade space discussion which is unfortunate yeah well this will be the the saga that we'll be i'm sure tracking for quite some time so the next one we got another area of uh of saga in the jadc2 world u.s army awards northrop 1.4 billion dollar contract for future, bat, future battle command system. And this is, of course, the system that actually grew out of the integrated air missile defense system. Um, and they've already spent $2.7 billion for it. And now they kind of want to build it out into a larger command and control system. And I think we've, actually, we've, we've heard uh, Chris O'Donnell kind of talking about this as like a, a role model for you know, good open architecture and building, and building out the C2 space. But um, yeah, so Northrop got the award here, 1.4 billion. Um, you know, it's had a lot of problems, right? The the program experienced an almost four year delay and struggled in a 2016 limited user test. But it, I guess it's starting to go better now. So you know, it's interesting that they're going to want to use this as the basis for expanding out some of the kind of JADC2 realm. And it seems like this is just one of many, um, you know, projects going on that could in some way build out themselves into like these kind of stovepipe JADC2 solutions, right? You got like ATAC with the SOCOM, you have this one, um, you have Army IVAS, so there's another kind of competing one that could, could look um, like that. I think Navy Aegis is kind of doing similar things, Navy Open Mission Systems. Um, there's probably some in the Air Force as well, uh, right? ABMS seems to be the, the center there, but I don't know. Uh, what's, what's your thoughts here? I mean, this is going to kind of a traditional contractor on a traditional program. They're kind of trying to build it out. Yeah, we've actually had some involvement with these guys because uh, they are they actually are going to use a software pathway for uh, for delivering capability outside of the kind of the MDAP program. Uh, well, it'll be kind of integrated initially and then it will break out. So they have a good team. Um, you know, they're very technically competent and they you know, they, they seem to have a good strategy and, and they've made, made good progress. I, I will say, though, just in general, I really hate these big contracts like this. Like, you know, you know, it, it sounds like they also I didn't quite realize this until I dug into it more, but that they added a bunch of additional requirements on it, even 
even though they were having trouble with the initial capability. So that's never kind of a good thing if, if the program is already kind of taking on too much and then you add a bunch more on it. So yeah, these types of huge contracts I think should be try to be avoided in the futures. Break it off into, you know, let's try to get a, a good good MVP out there, pick your priority, you know, what, what sensors, you know, what handful of sensors do you want to be able to talk together? Um, you know, pick a space one, a ground one, you know, whatever, make that work and then add on to it as you, as you have more success. And so trying to do these big bang programs where you do it all at once and you come out the end and it's supposed to do a hundred different things. Uh, I just think we've kind of proven it doesn't, doesn't always go according to plan. So I hope it does. I, I really like the, the people on this program and you know, they're really smart. So I hope they um, prove us, prove, prove history wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be nice to have seen a modular structure here in the contract. Of course, it's 1.4 billion. That's probably the total value, right? Um, we're not really sure how they've been obligating to that yet. Uh, probably very little. But it, yeah, you know, it. I agree that you got to like write Gaul's law. You got to. You can't start with a complex system. You kind of got to build complexity out of simple systems, or or else you just it's never going to work. Um, but this in this case, it seems like. Right, they had a ballistic missile, you know, threat detection system, IAMD, and they kind of worked that out. And then they're going to build on top of that more sensor shooter, you know, capabilities. Um, and so it would seem like it's almost what you were saying, but maybe it's too monolithic. Like, I wonder if Northrop has like, you know, some dozens of, you know, agile teams, each kind of like, with kind of extreme ownership over certain aspects that they're trying to work on and whether they've actually kind of emulated in some degree the organizational and procedural processes that have been working in large complex systems in the commercial world or whether they're just going to build out a massive IMS and just like, you know, go about it the, the regular way that, that the department's been doing maze programs in the past. Yeah, you're right that they, they've developed some of the capabilities, but it also isn't something that's been extensively fielded. So, yeah, I think it will be. De I think it will depend on how they actually roll this out, and that'll be that'll be one, a good detail to watch. Is do they um, are they fielding a limit this limited capability and then adding on to it in a way that doesn't require you know wholesale you know um, you know a whole a whole new system or um, are they are they building it in a way where they can you know modularly add capabilities so yeah like uh, cruise missiles unmanned aircraft um, things that are not part of that original ballistic missile kind of capability um, but you know can be can be kind of tailored and say okay yeah you can you know replace this system this computer system with this and that'll do that or you adjust the radar in this way or is it like you know is it like adding a bunch of radars to the same system and now you have like you know, you're just kind of have a super complex system that has greater potential to have issues. And, you know, uh, when you're trying to add software to it, you got to like deal with all this additional hardware in the loop or would it have made sense for something like cruise missiles and unmanned aircraft to just do a separate system that was more specialized for that role, um, could maybe have more sim simplistic hardware. So yeah, I think, I don't know the answer to that, but that would be the question I would ask. So I guess we'll see. All right, let's get on to drone swarm land. The U.S. military's future waves of killer drone swarms. A 300-plus swarm of drones just flew in a DARPA test, and each drone uh, armed with a missile or bomb can take out a tank or a building. And uh, so this is DARPA's offset, interesting project name, for Offensive Swarm-Enabled Tactics Project. And uh, so, yeah, I looked at the video. It wasn't all of that impressive there's just some quadcopters kind of like flying around a, a, a test facility and uh one of, the, one of the parts here is that raytheon and northrop are the two selected integrators of these capabilities so pretty traditional i i, I suppose that they would have a lot of non-traditionals on their team they're just kind of integrating capabilities from from other guys in terms of autonomy and and um you know systems or quadcopters but um you know a little bit traditional i wasn't too impressed by the videos but you know if they can get those things moving together pretty well that that will be huge china seems to be well ahead they've had all sorts of interesting demonstrations of you know much more than 300 you know drums moving together in very intricate ways so um 
the U.S. needs to kind of move forward on this. Yeah, this seemed like a logical. Yeah, I agree with you on the videos too. I thought they were going to have three hundred swar- uh, three hundred drones like flying and, and ground drones and stuff all going at once. So I, I did expect more more in that in that video footage. Um, but it, this does seem like a natural evolution. It sounds like they've been working on this since uh, two thousand seventeen. So this has kind of been you know uh, you know crawl walk run kind of thing. And uh, the fact though that they did have air and ground robots kind of working together. Uh, they had the obstacles, you know, like these are all the obstacles and these are the kind of interest areas and, and the, the, the system had to kind of figure out how to, uh, how to get the right, the drones into the places that were the areas of interest. So yeah, I mean, swarm tactics, I think are one of those things that we're just going to see a lot more of. And this is probably, you know, kindergarten at this point, um, you can imagine kind of in the future as AI and ML starts to improve on, on these, uh, systems and, you know, uh, they're given a command and they have to, you know, go take out a target. You could see different uh, algorithms kind of being being brought into play for that. And, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes because there's, uh, yeah, this is the future of warfare, right? You just, I, it's hard to see. It's hard to, hard to see how this doesn't become uh, something that uh, all militaries turn to as a way to avoid casualties but get some of the similar effects. Yeah, counter UAS is going to be one of the really interesting, I guess, uh, stories, you know, here in this tug of, you know, pull and tug of of what's going on in the back and forth. But next one we got here, Kamikaze Drones. The new weapon brings power and peril to U.S. military from CNBC News. And so they kind of highlight some of the, the interesting uh, drones here that are, quote unquote, the Kamikaze Drones, right? They just like hunt and seek and, and destroy so the Switchblade 300 is a small, low-cost kamikaze create, made by Aerovironment, which we've talked about here on the on the podcast before, and um, they've been using it for several years in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, costing just six thousand a piece compared to a hundred and fifty thousand dollar Hellfire missile, typically fired from a Predator or Reaper drone. So the Switchblade can also be taken in to battle in backpacks and fly up to seven miles to hit a target. Um, the 300 model is designed to kill individuals, while they have a larger Switchblade 600 series, which can destroy armored vehicles. So, again, with the Kamikaze drones, here's just some specs on on some of the Kamikazes themselves. Yeah, this has been. Yeah, we talked about this before. It's uh, it's kind of it's kind of amazing how small the form factor it is. Uh, literally, the guy. I mean, it looks like. Um, and it looks like a picnic blanket almost like and he was carrying it. And so kind of a, kind of incredible. It has the capability that it does. And seven miles for, for that small of a vehicle is, is pretty impressive. Yeah, I was kind of interested because when I saw the Hellfire, Hellfire missiles are a little bit expensive. They have some more advanced capabilities. But I was thinking more of comparing it to the uh, APKWS, which is this advanced precision kill weapon system that was fielded a few years back. Um, it's basically a rocket with with the, with guidance on it that can take out um, take out a human or a really small target. So I was kind of like I, I kind of went and checked into that to see how much uh, we were paying for those. And even that, which is essentially a rocket, is twenty two k. So the fact that these are down to six k piece makes this a pretty incredibly affordable um, weapon to uh, to take into into combat. So yeah, it's. Yeah, and I suppose you can reuse them if you don't kill something, right? Um, you could like send it out on a little scout, bring it back, or maybe I, you know, I, I assume a lot of these things, you know, if it's a seven mile thing, you know, radius, and you don't exactly find your target, there's just gonna be like the battleground will be littered with like these things that fall out of the sky after they they don't have any more range. And what do you do? You just like pick them up and recharge them? I don't think they'll be recoverable if they have a if they have a warhead on them. I, I think they might. They're probably gonna have to have something where they blow up. Blow. Self-destruct. Yeah, before I don't think they'll try to. I don't think. Like I think the safety, the safety of uh, issues of trying to recover it would probably be too much. But <laughs> fair. All right. Well, ba- Biden here is tapping former NRO official Frank Cavelli to run Space Force acquisition. So this is the big, the big news here. And Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the Air Force, has been trying to accelerate, um, along with Congress, getting a new uh, service acquisition executive into the Space Force because, of course, uh, the Air Force SAE had been running for both. 
And so here we have Cavelli, and he's worked 30 years at the NRO. And then he joined um, Booz Allen Hamilton just a few months ago to lead their space and intelligence programs. And uh, so, yeah, did, I, I wasn't really aware of him. I think you also um, didn't really know who he was. So I think in our you know white space of DOD, he's um, not really well known, but he's run a lot of important programs and done a lot of things in the NRO, which has a very interesting way of doing acquisition, uh, by the way. So... Uh, maybe he'll bring a flavor of that to the Space Force. Yeah, I did. I did sort of ask around about him. And yeah, it sounds like he's, um, you know, he's, yeah, he's a veteran of uh, the NRO. And so he's, you know, maybe a little bit more traditional um, in his thinking. He's, he's, he definitely embraces the NRO acquisition kind of process. But, but you know, it's, it's very, it's much more deliberate than kind of some of the things that, that we've talked about in terms of how space should go. So, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see. He's also um, worked actually with uh, General uh, Gutlin at the uh, Space Systems Command. So uh, they know each other very well. I think that partnership could probably be the, uh, the real benefit of this selection um, for this because uh, they can you know, sort of put their heads together and make sure they're, they're synced up on, um, you know, what, what's Space Systems Command doing and then with the whole transition of SDA and uh, Space RCO and all that stuff. So that could really pay dividends. Um, but yeah, I think it's great that we're getting some in there. I just hope he kind of gets confirmed rather quickly and, and not languishing like we've uh, seen with Andrew Hunter and others. Yeah, definitely. This seems to be the trend here on, on the confirmations, but, um, you know, well, we're moving forward, and hopefully they'll be able to, to get something done. That's just the, the reality of the situation with political appointees, right? Just like not a lot of tenure um, um, there. So we'll, we'll stick with the space industry. There's an interesting article here in Space News. The U.S. military looking to build lasting relationships with commercial space industry. And so here they're really just kind of talking about how the Space Force um, is trying to flip their model from where they started with kind of like a custom solution for uh, for space. And now they're trying to say, no, everything we're going to do, basically, we need to look at the commercial landscape first and see how much of the requirement we can meet there and then move from that instead of kind of like starting with our own program and then hoping, you know, I guess <laughs> in the market research phase, after all the requirements, all the money is there that that you know, commercial will come in and be able to, to slot in usefully. So, you know, we've, we've heard that a lot, right? They've been, they've been talking about the Space Force that they want to take advantage of the commercial sector a lot more. One of the, I guess the most interesting thing here was Aerospace Corporation, one of, the F, one of your FFRDC sisters, right? Um, they want to actually be what they're calling um, like kind of like the front door, right? Or like the, the partnering between government agencies and the commercial se sector. So they're going to be the bridge between government and commercial entrants. And they think as the nonprofit, yeah, here the aerospace can operate as the gatekeeper on behalf of the government. And so I'd like to get your opinion there, but gatekeeper seems kind of like a scary terminology to be using. Yeah, this is, this is interesting. I mean, MITRE has a couple of things like bridging innovation kind of efforts and you know, they try to serve as that broker to kind of connect some things. Uh, you know, like we've talked about with bridge funds, it, this is always a tricky thing to do, right? Because FFRDCs don't initiate you know, programs; they don't have power uh, of the purse. You know, um, so they're not they're not a PEO, and they can advise and they can you know do all kinds of you know supporting functions. But ultimately, you you do need the government to kind of say yes, we want that and. Uh, we're willing to start a program and go through the process to start a program or uh, PEO is willing to approve, you know, some type of effort to go to go after it. So, yeah, you still need you still need that. You still need that back end acquisition um, process uh, to get started. But, yeah, definitely aerospace They're You know, they've been in this space for a long time, highly competent, really good at what they really good at this, you know, in the space sector. So they're well, well postured to say, hey, look, this would be a great uh, company or great suite of companies to meet some of these capability needs we see coming up and here's how you could do it and kind of, you know, help the government uh, get, get it started. So yeah, I think they can provide a lot of value in this. Um, but yeah, it will still be interesting to see, can you connect the dots between the requirements, the space architecture office and the commercial, you know, um, 
the new commercial office that they that they stood up, uh, SSC stood up. You know, can you connect the dots between all these things and have that you know scaling uh, scaling function where a company that has a, a, a new great capability can uh, you know can can actually get real money. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I. I guess, you know, it, as you were talking, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, of like Naval X, right, in the Navy, where they they don't actually like have zipper money or any kind of contracting authority or anything, right? They're not an acquisition office to any degree. They just kind of sit in the middle and they're just like, yeah, we just kind of like help companies identify customers and smooth that that process over so maybe aerospace kind of wants to sit in that place but um yeah i I mean when i think about how aerospace treated spacex right um they weren't exactly the most inviting to that commercial you know launch provider um and getting them up to speed and into the into the space force or i guess at that time the air force so maybe they're trying to change their stripes a little bit um i agree though that a lot of smart people there, so um, maybe they will be able to do that. But you definitely have to. The one thing I you have to give credit for is Space Force. Maybe we haven't seen we haven't seen the full execution of kind of some of the vision they they've laid out. But uh, just seeing a lot of the dialogue with the with the senior leaders, seeing things like this, we're saying we're trying to flip the script, you know, and actually see what what commercial innovation is out there and using that to drive requirements. I really do think that's the future. So. I do love that they're saying the right things. I think we'll see here in the next couple of years, you know, how much of that actually gets fielded. Or is there, you know, is there a, you know, do you revert back to the mean, right? Where you, you, you start doing, you know, start creating new exotic programs with, you know, military unique kind of things. And then you just, you continue to dabble in the commercial space. So that'll be interesting to see is, is the shift primarily where 60, 70% of the funding is going to the commercial sector and there's just small parts of it that are kind of those unique capabilities or is it, you know, yeah, that, that'll, that'll be the thing is does, does the switch go full commercial or does it stay in the kind of dabbling phase? Yeah, I mean, I feel you and it, leadership is always saying the right thing. It's just like, how, how does it get down? And you know, they've been talking about really jacking up the amount of OTs, and I'm not really sure if they're really on track as what they expected a couple of years ago when they wanted to get like $12 billion to the Space Enterprise Consortium over, I think it was 10 years, but I don't think they were able to really grow that too much. But I guess that's, I was just talking to someone today, and he was like, you know, the, the problem there, especially in government, is like when leadership starts with a message, you know, as it goes down the ranks, right, towards execution, the the volume on the procedural aspects always gets jacked up and the volume on, you know, the mission and what they they really need to drive forward, you know, gets turned down, (laughs) right, as it goes down. So, you know, even if leadership is really trying to drive forward, um, the the real question, it seems, is will the culture of the service actually go along with that and of course they created the service you know distinct from the air force for the cultural piece right and so you know can they follow through or not um you know i don't think it's a matter of regulations necessarily or leadership it's kind of like or maybe it is leadership like what does leadership have to do to make sure people actually respond to the incentives like is is words not enough like do like do they have to walk around and beat someone over the head no, I think you're right. It's, they have to set the vision. They have to, you know, say this is the way we want to do business. But they also have to monitor when things are, you know, going awry. So, I mean, I think most leaders, all they have to do is look at the the budget that's coming up, and if they see all these huge program of records that are, you know, a bunch of all exotic systems, and there's like five percent going to commercial sector, they have to probably raise the red flag and say, "Hey, guys, I thought we said we were doing doing things differently." Like explain this to me. So yeah, I think leaders are going to have to stay heavily engaged at the, you know, general level, but at the 06 level and, and really, you know, make their folks uh, uh, think differently. And I think people down at the lower levels are thinking differently. I think their challenge will be is to get it through the process uh, that's, that's staffed by people who have done it a certain way and they're very comfortable with that way. And so it'll take, it'll take 06s that, 
that that get the message of you know kind of fighting uh, any resistance you know in those different trenches uh, to help their people actually you know accomplish this. It, it won't be easy. I mean, no, nothing is easy when you're changing culture. So, you know, Steve Blank said, you know, maybe we just need all the '06s and '05s to just straight up retire, and then when we get the new blood that kind of grew up in this, they like that will solve it. Do you think that's the case or do you think when the next generation becomes an 06, they become just as conservative? I don't think it, I actually don't think it's just the people. I mean, part of it is like who you promote. If you promote people that are really good at, you know, navigating the system or following the system that's in place, then you're going to get people who are, you know, proponents of the system. Um, So I think it's more about the processes kind of get put into place and there are people who manage these individual processes and they're oftentimes gatekeepers, go back to that word, um, for different things, getting through certain wickets. And so unless you change those people or their mindset or kind of force them to change, then you still have those same wickets in place. And so it dilutes whatever in a, you know innovative approaches are coming up from the bottom. And by the time they get to the top, there might be a little bit of innovation left, but so much has been beat out of it, right? Because you got stuck through the same process that we always had. And so it's just, um, you know, that that's where I think you need leadership is to go have those battles and say, hey, I know you've always done it this way. Uh, and we need your help here to get this through, but we want you to think differently. And that's that's the paradigm shift that's going on now with software and the test community and cost estimating communities is, you know, well, hey, we need to do things differently. So I think the Space Force will will have to fight some of those battles to, to achieve this vision. U.S. Well, you know, talking about services trying trying to change here. U.S. Marine Commandant fund Force Design 2030 or leave the Corps in the lurch from Defense News. I think this is the deciding point where the Pentagon and, and Congress they they need to be willing to go back into the organization, and accept that risk, willing to move at speed, willing to discard legacy things, learn fast. Um, and so, you know, the Commandant here, General Berger, um, has is really you know you know tapping the the foot on on the on the i guess the accelerator here and trying to say hey congress we need to you know retire things and and move in this direction marine corps might be small enough to do that other people frank kendall is definitely saying very similar things for the air force in force design 2030 the marines want to shed tanks uh bridging companies artillery and more and instead they want to pay uh, use that money to pay for mobile anti-ship missiles right the I guess the naval strike missile on the JLTV, unmanned vehicles, sensors, and electronic warfare tools for scouting and counter scouting uh, competition, and other things like that. So again, um, I think we've talked about this several times on how the Marines are trying to move to this light force. I, it'll be interesting to see. You know, at some point you need to kill things, right? So anti ship missiles is you know useful, um, but. Um, you know, I think the, the Marine Corps here is small enough to be able to take these types of risks and, and see what happens. And hopefully, you know, Congress will let them. Yeah, I mean, the Marines have always been good at kind of figuring out how to maintain their relevancy. And I think that's what they're basically telling Congress. I mean, they seem to have some had some wins this year. I think they did get to divest uh, or got permission to divest quite a few things. So, yeah. So I think the, the commandant's kind of saying, hey, we're at this point now. You're, you're letting us divest some stuff. We have to kind of go all the way with it. If you want us to be relevant in the Pacific, we need these, uh, you know, these uh, little um, expeditionary ships or low, what do they call them? Walls. These, uh, yeah, these, these, these ships that we can actually get around, um, you know, so we're not stuck on an island and can't get off uh, until we wait for some big ship to show up. So, you know, I, <laughs> there again is the distrust at Guadalcanal, right? right. Like, geez, they, and and people are gonna are gonna not like that because they said that's their number one priority the light amphibious warships, um, but like I'm sure people, you know, elsewhere civilians are gonna be like, no, that's what the navy's for, you know, right? Like you don't need all that kind of stuff. Like, well, this gets into our the thing we've talked about before about like, do you have redundancy, or do you have like every service be specialized? You know, it's kind of like, well, if if in this case it'd almost be like saying the navy shouldn't have any airplanes because there's the Air Force, right? It's like they all sort of have some redundancy is actually good, and this could actually benefit the Navy. And I think they make that try to make that point is this is actually, you know, uh, alleviates the need for the Navy to have to worry about them, and they can go and, and do their missions in the different ways they're trying to do here. So, 
So the next one we got here, um, accounting for software and weapon systems from FCW. This one was kind of all over the place and pretty interesting, uh, but you had Dave Cadman here, who I suppose is now kind of acting as the acquisition enablers in OSD. And he was kind of talking about, well, you know, first it seems like he wanted to be able to split out programs a little bit better. Um, use middle tier to carve out something, software acquisitions for others. I wish more programs would pick it up, Cadman said, of the software acquisition pathway. So he was kind of uh, touting your your software acquisition pathway there. Any any quick thoughts on what Cadman was talking about? Yeah, he's I mean he's one of the he's yeah, he's the boss of the Ac enabler. So he's he gets regular updates on, you know, software pathway and all that stuff. So yeah, he's a proponent. Um I, I think this article is a little bit weird in terms of, you know, I think he was making the point that you still do need to worry about integration. And there are some of those mission, uh, those, you know, major capability programs that, you know, are using the software pathway and making sure that the software is supporting, you know, the hardware that's envisioned and, and making sure that integration happens is important. Um, you know, if you have, dev, if you're using DevSecOps and you, you're using all the, the digital engineering and all the things that we, we kind of preach about, then you're going to have that. Um, so there, I think some of his quotes got maybe misconstrued uh, a little bit, but, but yeah, no, he's, he's a, he's a fan of, of that. He's also a big fan of data though. So I think he was kind of making the point of you have all these different programs, how do you track the costs? And that's something that he is, he's worried about because GAO keeps uh, harping on it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that. Cause he was talking about like the F35, they had in-flight test pro problems that could have been solved by software or hardware. And it's kind of up to the program manager to make that call. Yeah, it seems like this is the real problem here. Like he was saying, okay, I want you to kind of be able to split out programs into these different pathways that make the most sense for what you're doing. But then, yeah, how do you integrate that back in? And we had a conversation on this in terms of, well, what does that mean for the real program of record? Are you like connecting all of these other pathways to a single APB, like major program that everything will integrate into? Or like, how does that all work? Because it seems like you're now just trying to create a like a system of systems with multiple pathways, and you're still you're not getting around this like requirement on prediction um, to some extent. And I think one of the key quotes here, uh, which really kind of bothered me to an extent, what he said: "If you're not doing earned value, what are you doing? I mean, you can't be unmanaged when you do your program. Like, what 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 does that mean? What is he trying to say? Everybody should be doing earned value." Uh, he is a fan of earned value and he's a fan of tracking costs. Um, so that probably is his opinion. Um, you know, there's just like any organization, there's different opinions about what, <laughs> what should have earned value and what shouldn't. Um, but yeah, he does uh, oversee the earned value shop and he's a bit of a fan. Well, you know, that could, it, <laughs> What is the implication of having earned value management on a software acquisition pathway uh, project there, Matt? Yeah, that, I mean, that's where we've been trying to shift the paradigm is to say, you know, tracking cost does not equate to uh, capability, right? I mean, you can spend a lot of money and you can have, you know, compliance to exactly to your plan. But if it's not what the users need um, or what would they prioritize, then it's not, it's not value added. So that's why we've been shifting the paradigm to say, you know, deliver smaller smaller and faster um, if the user is supportive of that. And and then you can get their feedback and, and make sure that you're going after those uh, highest priority things. And then you're getting that real-time feedback so that you can incorporate that into the next release. Uh, and it just makes sure that it just helps to make sure that the user is getting, getting what they need and they're more integrated. I think when you do earn value, you're kind of taking the user out of it a little bit because now you're saying I have this pre-established plan and I have to conform to it. And it makes it a lot harder to adjust uh, if, if user priorities change. So, yeah, I think we're we're trying to shift that because uh, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> awesome. So the last one that we'll uh, end on here is an interesting one. Electric Sky wins DARPA grant to work on focus power beaming systems for drones. So Electric Sky is building something it calls Whisper Beam. It it's a transmitter for providing tightly focused wireless power to drones in flight. And so they got 225K from DARPA. Um, and one of the keys here, I guess, and this was an interesting bit, lasers and microwave beams typically start out strong but get weaker as they travel outward. In contrast, 
Whisper Beam's transmissions start out weak, but get stronger near the receiver. The radio wave sent out by Electric Sky's transmitter self-focus at the receiver, enabling the drone to draw kilowatts of power in any kind of weather. So that's actually really, I thought it was really cool. <laughs> and, you know, you can imagine all sorts of uh, uses for this thing on basically, you know, every drone that, that the department will need. So um, I think this kind of power beaming, we've been hearing it from space, right? Can they beam power from space? That seems a little bit longer off. So I, I wonder, like, you know, is, is this going to be something that can be fielded in, you know, a few years or is this a longer range thing? But pretty cool nonetheless. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this, too. I mean, it, I think the potential is just, you know, humongous because as more systems become, uh, you know, electric, um, you, you know, electrically uh, powered, uh, you're going to need you're going to need something like this to get the distance on some of these smaller EVs. And I've always kind of thought that was a big lymphatic for for any kind of, you know, using smaller drones uh, to achieve kind of these big effects is you need to launch them at distances that um, require them to, you know, to, to be able to have enough power to, to achieve. And you can do that on some of the larger ones, but you get smaller, you have, you know, smaller battery sizes. So, so this is really, really awesome. I, I hope that it's successful, but, you know, it is the first phase of the project. I mean, they haven't even done lab bench demos or anything. Uh, they just got their award. So, you know, they, they kind of have a long way to go to make it make it something that could actually operate at really long distances at high power. But the, the concept is pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful, you know, over the 2020s and 2030s that there's going to be a lot of really interesting deep tech things that start coming out. And, um, you know, one that we didn't talk about was uh, some some scientists figured out how to build a warp bubble <laughs> that might be able to get like a a nanometer kind of, uh, you know, system through at warp speeds, but, <laughs> you know, just like tons of random, interesting things, <laughs> you know, that we've been talking about on this podcast and other, and other places, but it seems like, you know, the department of fence has all this money and it can really accelerate a lot of these things and, and bring those capabilities in the United States. And we're kind of at that inflection point, like, will the department of fence do it or will it just kind of be funding these interesting little experiments at DARPA and other places and you know they just kind of die or something like that I don't know so I'm hopeful though I think the 2020s is going to be a really interesting decade not just geopolitically but also you know crazy types of technologies that might be might be coming out I think you could be right <laughs> well, that's all we got time for this week thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next time thanks Eric this concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk if you have comments interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.